G'day ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Life of Mine, the go-to mining podcast. Matty Michael here. Now, I assumed that since I didn't know a hell of a lot about rare earths prior to this episode, that there were also others out there. So why not do a rare earths podcast, I thought. And you know how we love a good two-part series on Life of Mine. So I am joined by Brett Hazelden and Darren Holden, Managing Director and Chair of OD6 Metals. Now, they've got a clay rare earth exploration play down near Esperance, Western Australia. Thanks to Tim Davidson from Mika Metals for turning this one up for me. There's plug number one, Timmy. So, in part one, we get into overview of rare earths, their history, their primary uses, how they're formed in the ground, how they're found in the ground, especially the difference between the carbonatite rare earths and the clay rare earths the metallurgical processes, what we've got to learn in the metallurgical processes, and why is there a run for them in the current market. Now, stay tuned for part two, which will drop tomorrow. In that episode, we'll get into the rare earth producers who are the next cabs off the rank, both in Australia and around the globe. So there's no need for Wikipedia or anymore. You want to know everything about rare earths, you are in the right spot. Let's get into it. Rare Earths with Brett Hazelden and Darren Holden. Check in the portal. Copy, shift box. I got a radio check. Yeah, radio's working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. The chair in the vent bag. Yeah, stitcher up there. Thanks, mate. Yeah, right, copy that. Right, we're on. Lads, welcome. Rare Earths 101, here we go. Brett Hazelden and Darren Holden. How are we, lads? Very good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Happy New Year. Thanks. Thank you for having me. How's, uh, how's things in the market treating you so far, 2023? Well, we're above uh, the IPO price, which is always handy, so uh, that's always good. And I think we've uh, we stabilised. We've gone, had a big run up at one stage last year on some good uh, draw results, and then we pulled back a little bit. But hopefully get some good metallurgy results and good some um, more good drill results, and the yeah, market will follow it. Yep. Right, so to, before we get into this, this rare earth spectacular, we'll call it, just tell us a bit about, I guess, yourselves, how OD6 started your roles. Go for it. Yeah, so um, I'm a member and founder of a of a think tank group called ODET Geoscience. It's a collaboration with myself, a geochemist called Nigel Brand, a database data scientist, Colin Lloyd. And we were uh, sleuthing through the West Australian archives, looking for all kinds of opportunities. And we've, we've been working on a number of different things, been successful with spinning up projects. And um, uh, based on some historic data, uh, some work that was done by a company called Salazar, so credit to them for, for discovery in this district. Uh, Nigel spotted uh, quite a bit of open ground down in that Esperance area that we felt had rare earth potential based on some historic work. So we started picking up ground, state um, how many thousand square kilometers, right? about 4,000 square k's, four and a half thousand square k's. Um, and we essentially rolled that into an IPO called OD6 Metals. Um, we went on a hunt for a, from executive. You know, I'm, I'm a geologist, exploration geologist, really, and, and so much of this about development is going to relate to uh, metallurgy and processing and water and all those kind of things. So we didn't want to put a geo in charge, so we found <laughs> Brett, and um, uh, and uh, Brett's picked up and has been running with it ever since, IPO'd in late June last year. 
Very nice. Brett, what's your what's your background, mate? Before so getting it, I'll gather your background's not rare earths because there's not much of a background I don't there. Anyone's got rare earths <laughs> really in the long run. Uh, there's a few people. I'm a metallurgist originally, so I started in Swans Valley and Leonora Labor residential once upon a time before fly and fly out really kicked on, then went to Argyle Diamonds. And then I came uh, back onto the project side. So I worked for big project organisations like Fleur and others. I uh, went through Newcrest, uh, Rio Tinto, uh, a few other different companies. And uh, we started a company called Kelly and Lakes. Um, took that through from virtually where we were with uh, OD6 here. Uh, took it from the virtually the garage all the way through to where it's uh, almost in production as we speak. So uh, I've sort of been out of that for over two years now. But um, yeah, so this popped up, Esperance region. Uh, Rare earths, hot commodity, so yeah, good space to be in. Not a, yeah, not a, not a bad place to stay when you go on the side, is but, it? Right. A bit of a surf down there, just watch the sharks. Um, <laughs> right, part one, I just want to, we're going to split this into two parts. Part one, I want to go a bit of a rare earth overview. What they are, where, the, where they come from, the metallurgy, geology of it, two perfect blokes to talk about it. Then part two, I want to probably go into project-specific stuff, who are the big players and, and sort of that. So if you're listening part one you've started in the logical spot so rare earths what are they and why are they the hot topic at the moment don't fight over each other for the microphone during <laughs> <Yeah>. this <laughs> uh, they are a suite of elements they're actually not really that rare as it turns out the etymology of the word is uh it's got a slightly different uh, background meaning but they're becoming increasingly important in the critical mineral space was uh, it first titled they were rarely mined Metals, that's where the rare I'm comes from. I'm not sure about that. that. I don't think so. I think it was hard to find and separate them out once yeah. upon a time. Uh, yeah. they, they, they often go together. They do sit together, right? The most common ones are cerium and lanthanum. Uh, they have the least utility. Um, neodymium and praseodymium are two that become increasingly important, uh, particularly the neodymium magnets are used in wind turbines, electric motors. Um, anything that has a neodymium magnet is far more i think 18 times more efficient than a standard ferrite magnet so if you put one of those in a wind turbine you're going to generate more electricity if you put one in an electric motor you're going to generate more power um well, you're going to go further on your car well, you, yeah. go, you can go further on your car yeah. you know yeah. but, but as a tesla yeah. you know what it's all like so oh, you've got to get in yeah. the theme of it, <laughs> you? You right. the brand. support the industry and that's and that's the ndpr that we've that's seen the ndpr that we've referred to uh neodymium praseodymium the uh, the other two that are quite important, which have much lower levels, uh, terbium and dysprosium, uh, they're used a lot in electronics, um, you know, phone screens, all those kind of uh, more micro applications. Um, uh, but they all kind of come in together, and you generally get more NDPR than you get TBDY in a, in a system. Uh, but yeah, they all they all kind of crop up together and become increasingly important. And China has dominated global supply of rare earths, um, and of course the West is now trying to catch up in order to secure uh, supply going forward. There's a few military applications as well, so hence uh, US and others uh, want to make sure they can actually supply themselves. They used to be the biggest supplier of the US once upon a time and then China took over mm -hmm. and they virtually shut down their own internal mines and now they've restarted those mines. But um, yeah, so it's an interesting story when you look at it. So the Chinese were smart. They figured out this was the next um, electricity boom and how to make things go. So the next coal, the next oil type thing along with lithium and mm -hmm. that's where it all came from. And, and which and which are the biggest? So you've got the the, the magnets of neodymium magnets are for mostly renewable 
energy, but is there other electrical applications as well as the renewable? Yeah, that's sector? right. So it can go into, uh, there's holodex rays and medical type devices yeah. that it goes into as well. It does go into ceramics, um, goes into glasses, go into, I think it puts in, some of them go into some of the uh, fuel um, additives or actually uh, removing the impurities from the air as well. So there's a whole heap of different applications. So of that suite of 15 elements, um, obviously there's three or four that are key magnet elements and then there's a whole lot of others that are used for all sorts of different things as well so is that is that when the announcement reporting i'll say there's always a, a when the total rare earth oxide percentage but then there's what percentage of that is ndpr are they the they're the key things that keeping to look at yeah so you don't want a pure lanthanum or cerium deposit because no one would really want to pay for it so the proportion of the critical minerals the magnetic rare earths uh, in particular are really are really important so when hmm. when you ever see a company publishing their results as x many thousand ppm or percent total rare earth uh, always check the uh the proportion of those which are the ones that actually made the money off yep so out of uh if we uh, get a mine up and running about 80 percent 90 percent of the value in terms of actual revenue will come from those two elements and dispose them into medium as well so the ndpr is the main that's the yep. first main one and the second one was that you said tbdy tbdy yeah, terbium i've only got eight letters to remember i should be fine with <laughs> me yeah so they're all magnets effectively they're going into all these high-tech magnets Okay, so the TBDY magnets yep. as well. Yep. Okay. And the demand and the price is going up for those ones because they're all going into the cars, the EVs and the wind. So because yep. you're seeing 10 million cars with EVs being bought and all these others every month going around the world, uh, look, that's driving demand. Yep. And so the the initial, so there was a boom, what, early 2010s around that area when I guess Linus come to the forefront. What was that? So we'll go back to that boom. When, when did Rara start and come to the forefront then what was that boom as a result of because it wasn't the electric vehicle thing that we're going through now why did that one happen can you remember i think it was kind of a, in response to the the anticipation of, of such a thing it was just a little too soon i suppose yeah. so there was loads of projects and you're right linus got up and mount well started production and um yeah in more recent times um linus struggled for a long long time yeah. as well for the first 10 years in terms of profitability it was really um held up by the Japanese investment um, from the government side of things because they were looking for those critical uh, rare earth minerals and uh, couldn't find it anywhere sort of uh, outside of China or other places. So they needed a new source. And, and Linus is a bit of a, what we want to call it, it's a rare thing in terms of big high-grade numbers uh, that you don't see in too many other uh, resources that are popping up around the world at the moment. So they're, they're comparable to your green bushes for lithium, like the long-standing initial high-grade Correct, yeah. mob that got into production. Yeah, I can't remember the tonnage, but I don't think it's actually particularly high. It's about 10, 20 million tons yeah. total in results. Can't remember the numbers. Um, but really high grade. Yeah. Um, so so just as lithium had one of those sort of booms, you know, 10, 15 years ago or so, had one of those little people started to really pay attention to it and then it sort of fell out, didn't fall out of favour completely in market. People were still working on it. And then, you know, those have persisted through that that periods in the lithium space like Pilbara Minerals, for example, have now just gone absolute gangbusters mm. as the demand has come in. So we're, you know, we're revolutions don't happen instantly, right? Um, they can take a bit of period of time, but we've seen a bit of a tipping point globally with the recognition um, of the need for critical minerals. So just if you if you if you look at the dock in Freo about three weeks ago, there's about a hundred Teslas parked there. Uh, and then behind them were about 150 Hiluxes, which is what we're going to use to help find the rare earths to go into the Teslas, <laughs> right? So. Well, there's electric Hiluxes coming out now. Follow bringing electric Hilux. So everything, even the Hiluxes are going electric. Yeah, so, so people have become really, really conscious on it. And um, 
it's you know if you just kind of look historically at you know the early and initial oil booms um you know standard oil really formed as an a a, a heating and light company right uh, and then of course new uses came along in terms of obviously the motor car and those kind of things and we saw big booms and guys like john d rockefeller making loads of money uh first to the party and then others started piling in after that then the middle east uh, of course get involved and all becomes geopolitical over time but they don't they don't happen overnight these things build and uh a lot of the uses for the rare earths we may not have actually discovered yet um because we don't really know how the future really lays out it's just great to be in such an early part of that so the opportunity that presents itself to um explorers and developers and miners on this is to know that they're in the early part of the cycle uh and we'll see ups and downs and we'll see replacements and negativity and skepticism and um all those kind of things but i think i think it's fair to say that the world is shifting it's pivoting into a new a new energy revolution you go back to the one even before the oil uh boom in the late 1800s um early 20th century you go to the coal boom and what drove the industrial revolution and it's it's not just about change that requires the energy or the materials it's about providing the materials that facilitates the change i think as well so if we can get more rare earths and other critical minerals in space we'll be able to actually drive the change yep. And you look yeah. at the net zero targets they're putting for 2030, the amount of materials that need to come out to meet the so-called change. Um, it's, it's crazy. It's copper, it's nickel, it's lithium, and rare earths. Rare earths, they're predicting a threefold increase in demand. And uh, that's another 10 or 12 mines that need to be produced in the world mm. or put up. And it doesn't take, um, doesn't happen overnight. It takes you five, 10 years to get a new mine from exploration to actual development. Mm producing something and as you said it's all based on it's a very it's all very virgin territory the and they, maybe the lithium's really virgin territory with the the processing and everything so it's exciting times and we'll get into look your niche darren the geology of it yeah how are they where how do how do they sit what are the i guess your main types of rare earths how do they sit in the ground how are they commonly found so um uh, mines like mount welder um that liners have is a carbonatite. It's a special kind of intrusion. Um, as the mantle beneath the earth degasses in rather simplistic sense, uh, produces carbon dioxide that comes into essentially carbonate minerals. We used to carbonate minerals in um, in geology as being like in limestones and things formed by drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, these are formed by um, mantle degassing that that pumps essentially carbon dioxide you make carbonate minerals in an intrusive form which is a carbonatite and they will suck in all kinds of rare earth elements so they're the hard rock rare earths uh the uh, the minerals that are hosting the rare earths are uh bastonite monazite xenotine there's a number of different minerals in there uh they're sort of i guess if you're comparing to the gold space they're like refractory you've got to uh concentrate the mineral you have to uh, crush it finally, crack it in some form. Uh, a lot of energy into it. Yeah, yeah. capital intensity. Yeah, there's and also operating cost as well. So lots yeah. of energy intensity to yeah. get it in there. And the then the other form, which is relatively new for people looking for it in Australia, is is the clay rare earth. So China uh, produces a large chunk of their rare earth minerals from clays, um, which is basically where you're dealing with an erosional. Uh, to chemical weathering products that is concentrated rare earths that are already in in uh, either an ionic form where they're sitting as ions attached to clay particles or in a 
uh, a a oxide or even carbonate form as a mineral that is that has been altered and weathered from from the refractory elements and monazites uh, refractory minerals monazites anodines bacinite. So. So I'm assuming they're closer to the surface. The they're, they're closer to the surface. They're forming a little bit like, say, a, a, a laterite would form, like a nickel laterite, but they're like a clay deposit or a, or a bauxite kind of thing. So they were a sufficient uh, weathering uh, product. Effectively, um, all being dragged into a basin, yeah, and concentrated up in a basin. So they tend uh, yeah. to be large, long, flat kind of uh, lying systems, uh, rather than the carbonatites, so like a pipe type system in the uh, clays. Um, it's already fine because it's clay material, so there's you know potentially no cushion required, and the leaching metrics, and not needed to crack them. So you can start to think about much lower grades of material in order to be able to process those. So they are very two very different styles of mineralization. There are several other styles. There's rare earth pegmatites as well, and there's a number of other things. That You've got Hastings about. with iron. What are they? Iron based. Yeah, well, it's still a carbonatite. It's um, uh, a ferrocarbonatite. So it's a it's a weathered. Looks like very much like a gossan surface. That's Hastings at the Yangabana project up in the Gascoigne, which is a recent development project. And Dreadnought Resources have made some great discoveries next door um, to Yangabana as well. So that looks like it's shaping up very nicely also. So there are a number of different styles and there may be styles that we haven't even thought about or discovered yet as well. So there's there's lots going on in the space from a research perspective. So when you say the clay rare earths, um, are they... Is that free dig or is it still drilling and blasting? Is it like a soft? Soft, it's uh, free dig effectively. So we don't yeah. need to drill and blast. We'll probably just keep a little light tap just to uh, loosen it up and make it easy to get in there. But uh, you don't Jeez, need to That's grind. no fun, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to grind it or pressure it or anything else as yeah. well. So you've got a couple of different processing routes that you can go down. So you can go down either a, a heap leach type approach. Again, like gold, gold oxide, uh, low grade gold, put off a bit of acid on the top onto a leach pad, collect the solution. The solution then has all the rare earths in it that you're looking for, and then you precipitate the uh, sort of a mixed rare earth carbonate. Yep. So we're, and I said we're just going to go into the metallurgy, and we've got, we've got, we've got every suite of uh, og and blow things up, but it's good to see we've got the geologist <laughs> and the metallurgist here. So, yeah, as a, just expand all that over, the I guess, the carbonatites and the, the clay rare earths. Yep. Different processing as and both where is the processing at at the moment? I guess where's the gaps in the, the knowledge of how to optimally process these rare earths. So the back end of the, the process plants are very similar. So virtually get a solution, once I uh, get all the rare earths into a solution, then take the solution and then drop the rare earths out. A bit like you do with gold with um, cyanide. Um, add the cyanide, the gold goes into solution, and then you drop it out as a gold bar um, after through like joining and everything else. So you can go through a heap leach process or you can go through a vat leach, and a vat leach is identical to CIPCIL tanks that you see in the gold fields. Um, you put some acid in it, leach it out and away you go. Uh, but there's a whole heap of impurities that come out when you put acids and all these type of things out. So you've got aluminium and iron and a few other uh, bits that you don't want in there, so you need to get rid of those. So that backhand of the plant for virtually all processes is very similar. Uh, you can then keep on processing it downstream further, so you can go from a carbonate to a, an oxide to a metal, and uh, it's all just cost uh, more money, more capital costs. So you've got to start somewhere. Whereas if you go back to the hard rock guys, um, it's obviously hard rock, so you've got to drill and blast, uh, you've got to grind it. Uh, as we said earlier, it's a bit like a refractory gold or a refractory ore, so you've actually then got to heat it up to 600 degrees or 800 degrees to try and crack it uh, once it's down nice and fine as well. And then once it's all opened up and all it's got really small surface areas and the oxide state's changed, then you can actually get the acids in there to actually leach it. 
So the, is there no is is the heating up a similar to a roasting? What pretty they much, refer yeah. to a roasting? Yeah, yeah, pretty close. It's like a big long kiln that goes. Yeah, it just goes through that. So, and how important or is or how critical are the impurities when you say the leaching out? When you if you're leaching out the deleterious elements, how critical are they in I guess the the pricing and everything? Yeah, so a bit like uh, a lot of the other things, so lead, copper, zinc. If there's impurities in there, they start knock uh, tapping you on the price effectively, so you'll lose it. So if the aluminium's too high, the uh, iron's too high, or even uranium and thorium and some of those little trace elements that come through as well, then you get a lower lower price. So yeah get rid of it as best you can and how, and how is it getting um uh what's i guess what's your, some of your examples are off take at, at the moment where it, how, how is it getting sold from australia so everything's going to china yeah so as much as people might filter it into europe it all ends up in china in the end so they're the only ones that have got the downstream processing units and to some extent the technology so ansto in australia so australian nuclear and science um, technology organization has the so the brains that have been looking at this for a long time, and that's where most of these rare earth plays are going to, to figure out how to process it. And they've done pilot scale works for Linus and a whole heap of other guys as well over the years. But yeah, everything ends up in, as a mixed rare earth carbonate at the moment, ends up in China. There's a whole heap of different ones. There's a little bit in Vietnam and other areas, but they'll then process it from a carbonate to an oxide, and they'll sell it to someone else. They'll produce it, they'll change it from a carbonate or from an oxide to a a metal and then someone else will take that metal and put it turn it into a magnet or they'll turn it into whatever the final use is yeah so it's quite a complex route so what you're seeing at the moment is all the car makers need these uh rare earth motors effectively and they're trying to figure out where to supply it from and it's all coming out of china so they're trying to go directly to the source which might be ourselves or aluka or hastings etc um but in in between you've got all these processing steps that are still going back to china to happen so Hence, uh, geopolitical tensions are there. Uh, people are wanting to see these downstream processes put into uh, America, into Australia, or into Europe. So, and Darren, you spoke about it before. How, I guess, your vision for the Australian rare earth industry, with look everything everything going on the risk of depending on China to send it to China forever, is probably not the best option. Where do you see the Australian industry going with rare earth, mostly and mostly in terms of the downstream? Side. I don't, you know, when Scott Morrison was Prime Minister, he stood on the steps of the Congress in in the US and, and declared they were really good at digging stuff up in Australia. And it was that we are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the uh, forming of the Quad Alliance, uh, which is the US, Australia, Japan, uh, and India, uh, to look at critical mineral space. With the uh, Labor government, we've seen that uh, adopted further, and the thought to not just dig stuff up, but to actually think about processing a little bit more as well. Uh, Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, wrote an opinion piece in the Australian not that long ago that talked about downstream processing around the same time. Madeleine King, the Federal Minister for Resources, talked about that. There's the Critical Minerals Facilitation Office has been set up there's a, uh, through the federal government and the, 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 the thought that we can actually be much further part of the supply chain. So the opportunity that presents is, uh, say, compared to the Pilbara or the Hammersley Basin Iron Ore, where there's been lots of sort of conceptual thing about how we can actually have a steel industry in northwest western australia but the shortage of energy in that area particularly coal for example i think lang hancock was going to bring the galileo um the galilee basin was going to try and get you know railway railway all the way across australia so we could have a proper steel industry rather than selling stuff where we where we are selling all so where we are down in the esperance area for example we are blessed with uh some of the best renewable energy 
um, price, uh, best renewable energy generation in the country um, as well. Uh, obviously, relatively close to the port of Esperance. Which is the deepest port um, in the Southern Hemisphere. Also. Oh, really? Southern Australia, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 So um, the opportunity that does present itself, particularly in Western Australia and the southern part of Western Australia, um, is for the potential to have downstream processing where we, we actually have what maybe the, the Pilbara Hammersley was never a- able to pull off. But um, energy, green energy, renewable energy. So, you know, one of the things, that, one of the great sort of uh, uh, paradoxes or conundrums that faces companies like Tesla that are trying to be clean and green and all those kind of things is they don't really know the provenance of their magnets and, and whereas um, the material, what kind of environmental laws those materials have been generated under. Whereas we can control that quite a bit better in Australia. We have to be competitive, that's without a doubt. But the green energy narrative in, in down in southern Western Australia, which we've seen, you know, Andrew Forrest has been getting down there and holding town hall meetings with farmers, talking about how he wants to have a hydrogen hubs down there and all kinds of things, because it's some of the best green energy there. And it just so happens we've got very large areas of strong accumulations of play railways and very, very large, what we're talking. So the potential to actually have substantial systems that are globally significant. Um, uh, sitting in the southern part of our <clears throat> continent, so you know, easy. We do want to uh, alliance those over to India, basically on the edge of the Indian Ocean, southern ocean. There, Esperance technically, but go into Korea or Japan or anywhere else. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it's uh, we're seeing certainly lots of good talk from the federal government about supporting downstream processing going forward. They've put quite a bit of money into Aluka recently. We're looking at taking their their monazite zenotime mineral sands um, and processing and cracking that. Uh, north of Perth, uh, in that area. So. I mean, there's also uh, if you look at America and even Europe, they're also putting a lot of money into these type of areas as well. So they've got lots of incentives, especially in America, to actually get um, uh, the reliance away from China effectively. Um, so we can potentially produce carbonate or an oxide, but do we go down to a metal? Not quite sure. It might be easier to send it off uh, to someone else that's built that, uh, especially from a capital point of view. But also it comes down to labour cost and experience isn't massive population, so. We've also got to go through those growing pains as well. And because how much do you reckon, like, back the envelope, you lose off the bottom line exporting the solution over to China to process, like, if you... Well, you, you, you send off a carbonate, which is, a like, a copper concentrate to some extent. So you'll get about 50 to 60% or 70% of the price of, a, of an oxide. Um, so that's a fair chunk off of chains that you're losing. Uh, and then if you go to the metal side of things, well, I couldn't quote numbers off the top of my head, but you are losing more. But... It's surprising the capital cost is quite high uh, compared to the margin that you're making the further downstream you go. Mm. So it's just a it's a trade-off, especially for junior companies like ourselves. Uh, you need to be able to raise enough money. But if you try and set the ball up as a billion-dollar project instead of a $300 million project, mm. then it becomes really hard to raise that money. And how, and how big, if you're going to, like, let's anticipate a downstream processing facility developed for a rare for rare earths in Australia, down, hypothetically, Esperance. Yeah, what sort of scale... Do you look up to something like that? If you compare it to, um, like, say, $2 billion, I think Liontown quoted about $2 billion for a downstream lithium hydroxide plant, how big would a rare earth one be? Is it, is it not of that scale? I think you look at Aluka. So Aluka are doing a billion-dollar project out of Eniaba. So that's a mixture of retreating some leftover monazide, effectively, um, and then cracking it and leaching it, and the back end of it is the refinery portion of it. I think that's probably... In the order of three to four hundred million dollars is what that refinery is actually costing a leaker if you try and break out. But there's a billion dollars from the government too. Is that? There's a billion dollars of uh, uh, plus. I think uh, Luca put in two hundred million. Okay, yeah. 
So, but it's also been on good terms um, in terms of uh, interest rates, payables. And yeah, it's a loan, isn't it? It's, yeah. not, it's not a grant. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a bit of uh, passive ownership in a way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. that, I think Verbal because of the jet, uh, somewhere in between ten and 20,000 tonnes of uh, uh, total rare earth oxides being produced. And that's still going to get shipped over to China at this stage. Yeah. Because there's no one else that's processing the downstream anywhere in Australia at all. A lot of energy to ship everything to China too, especially that tons well, of Well, it's not, um, <laughs> if you look at it, most of it's going to go into sea containers. Yeah. So, it's actually relatively cheap to get around. Yeah, it's partly refined product. In terms of your question about what sort of scale we're going to need down at Esperance, I guess we don't really know yet, right? And we, you know, there's a number of uh, other companies involved in the Esperance area, the, the potential, you know, a long way off, but the potential of, of, of things about shared facilities or things that can be uh, utilised all together. You know, we do consider our neighbours as, as 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 friends in many respects, and that's what good fences do in terms of the tenement situation uh, in Australia. So, you know, groups like Mount Ridley, uh, Mika Gold, uh, HRE, Heavy Rare Earths um, are all looking at exploring down that area, a private company called Requisite Resources uh, there and OD6 um, as well. So, you know, OD6 re, kind of rebroke the story in the area pre-IPO, but Mount Ridley was first to market on it because they were already an active company um, and it's sort of seen what we've been up to. Again, with due credit to Salazar, um, ten plus years ago, as a private company that, that worked it out, and then then um, had to pull back their tenements, and they vended to a company called West West Coba, um, WC One. So there's a whole lot of players in there, mainly juniors, and uh, you know we kind of got the jump on on you know the the Rios and the FMGs and, and those kind of things in that district. Um, but there does seem to be a little bit of interest around in in the district overall, you know, from the federal government, and uh, we think that there is that potential to really look at doing things a little bit collaboratively, a little bit sort of like uh, to think that a rising tide will actually lift all boats in this area. Um, and you need multiple minds to come online around the world, so there's yeah. no point everyone having an argument over it. We're all work together and yeah. make yeah. it work. Yeah, and how, look, and how does consolidation look on a small cap scale like i know you look at new newcrest and newmont that's consolidation on a massive scale how does it look on yeah well we're not necessarily talking about consolidation i guess we're talking about that um if we don't consider each other competitors we can consider each other uh in the region as uh potentially working group where you know ways that we can sort of share knowledge make sure that that we've got a similar sort of messaging you know we've got to work very closely with community of course when you're developing a whole new science and a whole new industry for an area so certainly we could not uh, foreshadow any potential consolidation that goes on in the area, or whether or not a major is going to come in, start bidding or taking positions. We've seen Wailu, which is you know Andrew Forrest's involved with getting involved with Hastings, and we've seen um, Gina with Gina with Arafura getting involved, Gina Whitehart and Arafura getting involved. Um, so you know we, in terms of we can't foreshadow what may happen down in our district. Uh, I can't forward lead the market on any potential, but certainly if we are strong together as a united front, you know, a market cap of OD6 miles today is uh, somewhere in the mid 30s, so 30 million, 35 million, something like that. Uh, but if you add up all the companies that work in that district, you're probably dealing with about 200, 300 million dollar combined market cap. So that's not to say they all come together. Right, but it's they can all stay separate, but still develop as long as we're thinking about systems. And most people yeah. have got big areas as well. So we've got four thousand square kilometres, and we did some 
aerial surveys recently with uh, electromagnetics um, and we've identified areas of say 250 square kilometres of clay basins out there. Um, the drilling that we've hit uh, 20 to 30 metres in thicknesses of really good grade, 1,000 plus to a trio, a total rare earths. So you start timesing those numbers out, you get massive numbers in terms of hundreds of millions, if not billions of tonnes. So the best, and that's only on us, so Mika will find the same, so will uh, Matt Ridley. So the question we've got is trying to solve the best geology, trying to solve the best metallurgy, and then trying to solve the financials on it as well. How are you actually going to make this actually economic work and, and what does it take to actually make one of these things actually get up and run? So if you look at the, as you said, the geology, the metallurgy, uh, the scale, what do you see? Environment, community. Environment, yeah. <laughs> and what, what do you, I guess, what do you see, Brett, the biggest hurdles in getting a rare earth exploration project into production at the moment? So notoriously, mo most rare earths, unlike gold, so gold you expect 90% plus recoveries. Uh, Metallurgy-wise, you're only expecting somewhere between 50 and 70% recoveries. Okay, so even lower the lithium. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So because there's a whole heap of different rare earth minerals there, monazites might still be, some remnant monazites might still be there and that's refractory, you won't get it through a normal leach process. So for us, it's about identifying where the best areas are that meet all those needs and uh, getting those areas up and running. So metallurgy is probably the big one. Uh, look where there's a mixture of areas down there that have got farmers and vacant crown land as well. So you have to work through some of those sensitivities. You've obviously got heritage as well. Um, but once you've found it, got metallurgy, and we think we'll solve the metallurgy sometime this year with any luck. Um, it's going to take some leadership and some good foresight to yeah. to do this and uh, you know, to be realistic about it as well, as well as you know, good new science and engineering. Right, things that we're not familiar with in, in, in Australia. You know, we don't have an existing clay rare earth projects in Australia, even though they do exist in, in Myanmar and China and, and elsewhere in the world and make good money in an economic um economic product. So so we've kind of got to really understand and invent all these invent and reinvent all of these uh things within Australia. And that's gonna take leadership from companies, uh leadership from the wider industry, the chemical industry. And of course, governments and um, you know potential other countries working together in order to move move things along. And particularly if it is really geopolitical, if we can't rely on China from a, from a, uh, a political political perspective, then we we have to find the technologies amongst our allies as other countries. And that means having friends in the community all the way through to our allies around the world. And a lot of these um, historically got up by government's funding. Um, so, say, Japan helping fund uh, Linus and all those type of things. That was a lot of government money coming through. You see Aluka being funded by, obviously, government again in federal government. Uh, you see in America, Main Peak, um, they're obviously getting a lot of money from uh, the federal government over there. So there's a lot of risk money, if you want to put it that way, that uh, uh, everyone wants a 10-bagger in Australia and they want it overnight and they don't want to take the risk. Um, but the reality is... Um, uh, it's not that easy. I don't know how many 10 baggers you've come across in your time, but um, there's not that Usually many. 10 the other way. Shrod, you're going to have Pilbara Minerals could finance about two or three projects a quarter, the rate they're going with yeah, their cash. So. You, go, uh. you go back to Pilbara, they were 20 cents. They went up to a dollar, they came back to 20 cents. Yeah. They were not um, in a good space with investors for a while. And then obviously the markets, the story's obviously taken off and now they're worth a lot of money. So it takes patient money, but... Um, Equally, uh, I remember being told by a couple of uh, different institutions once upon a time, it's no point being on the bleeding edge and putting your money in and being right and losing it all. 
you've still got to make money somewhere along the line. If we recall back to when Andrew Forrest and Anaconda were doing Moan Moan uh, and the sort of the cynicism, criticism that came out around the market, they won't get the Mets right, the Hydro Mets, too complicated, it's a laterite, or oh, we love sulfides and all those kind of things and persisted through and, and that's owned by Glencore now. Glencore now, they yeah. to start with, unfortunately, but yeah. they don't want to come and pick up the asset. And that thing we mined for 100 years, right? And that's just the, the amazing thing about it. And you know, speaking of 100 years, the you know whatever we're talking about government leading and infrastructure and those kind of things and just thinking about CY O'Connor's pipeline to Kalgoorlie you know it was just so so much foresight to say we can have an industry here the last hundreds of years we just got to get some water there right and they built the pipeline the government built the pipeline and it's still running whenever I drive to Kalgoorlie I think about that from a historic um, perspective and think about the the prosperity that has gained from governments taking the lead on that again you know a fairly sad outcome for CY O'Connor himself because he was lambasted and accused of things but I think we've you know we've come a long way I don't think we're getting lambasted by anybody in in OD6 and we're, <laughs> uh, we're out to you know take a little bit of a bold and fertile vision for this district um, and what we can achieve you look at the Alliance they're a multi-billion dollar company now yeah. so someone took the risk and obviously it's uh, paying off for those guys and they're well and truly now yeah. so I think there's uh, definitely opportunity down, obviously, where we are, but obviously in lots of other areas as well. Right, oh, no, sensational Rare Earth 101, if I say, may say so myself. Thanks very much, uh, Brett and Darren. Now, as I said, tomorrow, part two will be coming out. That is going to go into who the big players are, who the producers are, who is the next caps off the rank in Australia and around the world. Bit of market insight into the rare earth scene. Righto, I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Stay tuned. Give it a share around for me. I'm sure everyone else will uh, appreciate this valuable piece of information. Hooroo. Right.